This week on Hacker in the Fed, the U.S. hunts Chinese malware that could disrupt American military operations. A year in review of zero-day exploits. Study finds no evidence that ransomware victims with cyber insurance pay up more often. And there's fighting words between Tenable's CEO and Microsoft. And we answer listener questions from a listener in Greece, one from Holland, and a newly minted NSA hacker. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI committed. Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Joined, as always, by Hector Monsegur, friend and podcast co-host. Hector is a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collide in June 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you doing this week? And a podcast co-host. And I'm doing great, my friend. You are an excellent podcast co-host. Ah, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> how was your week? It was great, man. I, uh, I went out to do an event in Philly. Uh, big shout out to everybody there. I met some wonderful folks. And guess what I was wearing? I was wearing the Hacker in the Fed hoodie. Yep. Nice, nice. I think yeah, people man, go up and I'm, ask you about it? Um, when I got to the event, yes. Because I guess uh, prior to the event, the folks were like emailing their partners. Like, hey, check out Hector. He's going to be here. He has a podcast. But no, did I have anybody like, randomly like run into me in the streets? Or, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. You will. You will. So <laughs> I also had an event. I was down in Austin, Texas this week uh, speaking at, at a SANS uh, conference. Nice. Um, so okay. large audience there. So hopefully we'll get some new listeners. I was pipping the product. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, uh, I didn't see anybody wearing our merch yet. But I'm, I'm waiting for that. I'm hoping somebody hops on a plane or something and I see it. But a lot of big orders this week. A lot of orders overseas. What? So, oh, yeah. man, that's beautiful. So it'll be fun to see it pop up somewhere around the world. So Big shout out to our overseas listeners, man. Much love to you guys. Totally and big shout out you. to our supporters that buy our merch overseas. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, Especially. Oh, good. Appreciate you supporting the show, everybody. Are you announcing where you're going this week? No, I'm not. No. Okay, no announcements. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. Hector will be I'm, in New York all week. Yeah, no, I have I have some events coming up, but this week is going to be pretty, pretty chill. Um, I probably have a couple of my customers listening right now. Hello. Uh, I have uh, two major like internal pen tests I'm doing right now. Yeah. So I'm more likely going to be super busy on those. Yeah. Yeah, Naxo moved offices this week, so it's a big, big move for us. Yeah. Um, we're now over in Rockefeller Center, right outside we side the tree. No way. So yeah, it's so very cool. Come, anyone coming to New York, we're right there by the by the tree now. Um, we hired a guy in DC, so he's gonna start opening up our DC office, uh, get that going. Okay. Well, listen, I'm ready to migrate, so uh, I'll, I'll be glad to open the Puerto Rico office for you, oh. man. Yeah. Mofongo for Nexo. Mofongo. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got a new microphone this week. How do I sound? Does it sound you good? Sound, you sound amazing, bro. Your microphone sounds way better. 
Good, good. Hopefully, Phineas won't make me re-record things. <laughs> Remember, pound anti-Phineas, everyone. No, there you go. No, no more Phineas. <laughs> nah, well, we love we love Phineas. Oh, Phineas! Phineas is so dope. Such a nice guy. Um, I've since the day I met him, he's always been like so supportive and he's a sweetheart. So big shout out to him. So oh, for those that don't know, Phineas is our uh, editor. He's a yeah. producer editor of the show. So new listeners so uh people i i got reached out twice this week and mm-hmm. someone explained that we need to explain things more yeah. uh, what are your thoughts and feelings on that please so so someone called me and said i heard the show last week it sounded great but you guys were taking talking about like session takes overs and i don't know what a session is like, yeah so i don't really know what detail to go into in explaining things over and over and over again i know we get new listeners all the time and you know some terms, but like there's certain terms I just don't know if we can explain all the time. Yeah, I think that what we need to do, and I know we've discussed it before, we may have to just like um, at some point repurpose a part of the website and just have like a glossary or a term breakdown, um, so that folks can just refer back to it, right? I mean, at, there's just to, there's just so much terminology in cybersecurity, folks, that. If we were to explain every single term or phrase, the episodes uh, would become redundant for you guys. Like you would always hear, like, you know, I'm talking about a session fixation or IDOR vulnerability or whatever. Imagine having to explain that once or twice a month. You guys are going to hear the same thing over and over. You know, I, I don't want to bore you to death or, or drive you crazy. So we have to come up with something, Chris. I definitely agree that we need to help the audience with that a little bit more, and so we'll try to we'll try to be better on it. But also, are there things that you're intimidated about because you don't know like a lingo? I'll give you an example for me. I used to love to go bowling, but I feel like I didn't know all the rules and uh, how to score bowling. And uh, I know it's easy and electronically done now and all that, but like I didn't have the proper attire and all that. So I don't know. I was overwhelmed by going to a bowling alley and because uh, of like bowling leagues. Well, when it comes to like, if we're talking about cyber, like cybersecurity and so on, I think that my biggest weakness for sure is cryptography. So whenever we're talking about cryptographic topics or topics on cryptography, I may uh, I may have to like do some extra research prior to the story because there are some terms and terminology that you know I really just haven't really had to deal with in my life. So, and especially when I'm speaking to as a cryptographer or somebody that's a researcher in that field. I do a lot of mental note taking, <laughs> basically, mm. and a lot of listening. So, when you read it, can you retain some of the verbiage for from cryptography, or does it just overwhelm you? I try to memorize the definitions of certain things, or, or maybe have like try to absorb the concept of what the, what what the topic is or what specific item we're talking about here. Um, but it's hard, so I, I do take notes. So if you look at my laptop, I have notes everywhere, and they're random. It might be a breakdown of a certain concept. Like right now, I'm, I'm really going hard into like machine learning and uh, na- natural language processing. So I have notes on all sorts of phrases, terms, uh, algorithms, uh, regression, and this, that, and the other. So yeah, uh, that, that's the kind of person I am. I do the same. I I, I, what not, I try not to memorize things. I try to understand concepts. Yeah. Um, that's sometimes I'll like I'll know something, but I won't know the right word for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm not really good at like reading difficult words, sure. um, especially names. Oh, I, I, like you'll hear them today probably when we get to the mm-hmm. listener section. We yeah. got a couple foreign listeners that, uh, that I'm going to struggle with the names, and I sound like an asshole every time. Sure. Sure. Well, what? You're supposed to disagree that I sound Oh, like no, no, no. You sound great. I'm sorry. Fantastic. You sound fantastic. 
All right, Hector. First story okay. of the week. U.S. hunt Chinese malware that could disrupt American military operations. So mm -hmm. at some time in the past, and again, this is a developing story, guys. Very little details because I think a lot of it's classified. Um, yeah. But according to military intelligence, American military intelligence and national security officers, that mm -hmm. the American military is hunting malicious computer code that it believes China has put deep in the networks that control power grids, communication systems, water supplies, uh, that all feed military bases in the United States and around the world. And apparently, this first started through a hack in the, it was first found in the hack in the telecommunications system in Guam that we reported here on Hacker in the Fed. That's right, that's right. Guam right now is a hotbed for activity. And um, you know we need to invest resources and help those help those uh, uh, fellow Americans out for real. But yes, this is something that you know we've known uh, that, and it's not specific to China. But you know, I think I think for the story, the purposes of the political landscape right now, right, it makes sense that we're looking for Chinese malware. But it should be malware in general. I'm sure there's a random. I'm sure yeah. we're looking for all of it, not just the Chinese variety. Oh yeah, but in regards to the story, they kind of put an emphasis on the Chinese malware. The truth is that if there is a conflict ever in the future, World War III scenario, it would only make sense for adversaries to start compromising elements of critical infrastructure now so that they have access then, okay? Assuming we don't have like an internet kill switch by then where we just press a button and they're all disconnected at the same time, right? That wouldn't really help much if uh, those agents are here on the mainland um, or they're able to access the, the network here, but nonetheless... Uh, it is a very real threat, and I th I applaud the government for kind of looking into this. Yeah, so uh, I mean, there's I think there's two theories around why there, these attacks are out there. Um, it's one to disrupt any uh, American military, you know, operations or sure. you know deployments or resupply issues. If there was uh, something that happens in uh, Taiwan, yeah. Um, and they also there's a theory that it could uh, just be used to disrupt U.S. infrastructure and yeah. uh, sort of take the American news away from sure. any conflicts overseas, sort of distract the American citizens, mm -hmm. um, you know, from what maybe the Chinese are doing to another country. I mean, there are uh, military and civilian use cases for a breach into any infrastructure, but I would go even further than that. I want to give an example, ladies and gentlemen. You guys probably saw in the news there was a conflict. Well, not a conflict. Um, I was reading the word conflict and it just came out of my mouth. Um, there was a situation this week, uh, Chris, when I talked about it, where we had a um, social media influencer put together an impromptu uh, giveaway of PlayStations and other technology. Okay, um, What ended up happening is that thousands of people showed up. And it kind of uh, accidentally became a riot. They became a, 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 a massive uh, a raucous. Uh, they, they caused a bunch of damage, and they got to fight with the NYPD. The NYPD arrested a few people. Some folks got arrested. Um, the influencer himself was arrested. Um, now, let me propose a scenario. Let me visualize this for you, Chris. That's a pretty large gathering of people, and they did that pretty quickly. So imagine a scenario where a foreign government has control of social media within your country. And they're able to utilize the power of influence to get massive crowds of people into certain locations um, in the middle of a conflict. So let's let's use what happened this week with uh, um, that 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 situation that happened here in Union Square, Chris. Right now, imagine that was in the middle of a war, and the foreign government was able to post something like, "Hey, 
come meet your favorite artist here. And they're going to be in the middle of, you know, right next to a military base, uh, maybe in between a military base and a big city or a small city. And now you have 5,000 people show up to that location, potentially um, creating a conflict between the people in the military base, but also, um, you know, other disturbances with local law enforcement. Right. So it's it's pretty bugged out when you start looking at it that way. At least I do. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely see a disruption in that and that they could cause just by simple something simple as simple as that. So uh, I guess this group, this Chinese malware that they put the the group that did it together, they put sure. one of those weird ass names on it again. Hector, Volt Typhoon of malware. I, wow, man, I hate these names. I hate these names. We we had, did a whole story about it a few episodes back about these crazy yeah. ass cyber names. You just like to add to making cyber more confusing. Let's call it <laughs> Volt Typhoon. What the hell does that mean? I got to go back to the chart to see what each one of those words <laughs> corresponds with. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's it's getting pretty ridiculous. The yeah. security industry is, is kind of bugging out in how, um, you know, they're dealing with naming conventions and and uh, attributing certain attacks to certain groups. You have different threat intel providers or companies coming up with different names for the same groups. So Volt Typhoon probably has four other names. <laughs> Definitely, hundred percent. But we're not going to do them here because I, no. I I'm, I'm done with these crazy ass <laughs> names. The next story you sent me over, I found very interesting. It was a, a year in review of zero-day exploits in the wild in 2022. So mm. um, just going through by the numbers, 41 exploits in the wild exploits, zero days were detected and disclosed in 2022. Mm -hmm. It was the second most ever since they started keeping track in mid-2014. Mm. Um, now, it is down because there were 69 detected in 2021. Ah, uh, so it's a pattern. Yeah, so, well, not it's down, but... Well, it's uh, so. down, but look at the numbers, though. We're talking about 69 zero days that were detected last year, uh, sorry, in 2021, 41 in 2022, and the 2023 numbers are probably up there as well. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I don't know where they're at yet, but just look at the last two years. So um, Android is a platform, you know, this is the other different platforms. Android went from 7 in 21 down to 5 in 2022, iOS from six down to four. Uh, Mac OS doubled from one to two. Mm. Uh, Windows 10 down to eight. And uh, Microsoft Exchange five down to two. So, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to look at the numbers and what's happening. They said that Android uh, sort of, uh, they, there were some end days. That's the time from, so, so as an O day or a zero day is an exploit in some sort of software or hardware. Uh, yep. That even like the manufacturer doesn't know. So yep. then an end day, that is from when the manufacturer finds out to when there's a patch to fix it or some mm. sort of fix. Um, and they said that, you know, um, there was a lot of end days in the Android, Android platform because of Android's long patching times. Yeah, that is so. a good point. And, and by the way, I just sent you a link. I'm not sure you want to provide a send a link of, uh, to the audience of a spreadsheet, but Google actually released a spreadsheet of all zero days they're tracking. And so far for 2023, they have about 23. And it seems like a pretty broad mix between uh, Microsoft products, Google themselves, Android, and Apple. There's a couple others in there that are, that are kind of random. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the number of zero days that are out there that are being exploited and, you know, how we're detecting it. Remember, some of these go undetected for quite some time. They're usually detected when, you know, attackers either get lazy or they, they target, I would say, highly sensitive or... Uh, well-secured environments, hoping that the zero day will get through. Yeah, they did say, so while the number of O-days are down, 
um, that it's going from the exploits are going from zero from from used to be one click like sending a phishing link or something like that but now they're there's there are many more zero click meaning that you don't even have to do anything you just have to receive a link uh and your browser or your phone you know processes that data automatically um you know we talked about that go back and listen to an old pegasus an episode where we talked about uh the pegasus uh iphone takeovers so these vulnerabilities are that while there's less this year, uh, they're a little scarier. No, definitely scarier. I mean, we covered a zero a, a zero click exploit a while back. Yeah, you, you actually you're right. You used to talk about it, Pegasus. Yeah. Uh, those kind of exploits are really scary because you you don't even know you're being attacked. Uh, nope. so, so how can you mitigate something that you're completely unaware is even a thing, right? No, you could be attacked, uh, infiltrated, and then the evidence taken off your phone while all while you're sleeping. You never, <laughs> yeah. you, you never even touched your phone. Yeah, I think it's time folks turn off their phones when they go to bed. <laughs> do you do you turn off your phone at night? No, unfortunately, I have a lot of clients that are different time zones, and they always hit me up uh, by email or text message. So yeah, I, 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 I have to I kind do of the take same. that. I, I leave it on. Yeah. So. Probably not. Probably not good. You're probably better. I, w- I wish I could. Do- I should take like a few hours a week and just turn it off, which would be nice. But I don't even turn it off while we record the show. It's it's sitting right here, waiting for it to go off. Yeah, yeah, same here. <laughs> I, I mean, you've heard it. Obviously, I've had I, this evidence, recorded evidence of me uh, getting a text message, man. But, it's um, true. Uh, but here's what I think is interesting about this. There is there is some details here about uh, a very important topic that I think folks don't really talk about much and that is that so from from the the um, data you were looking at chris 17 out of 41 of those uh were variants of previous previously reported vulnerabilities these are vulnerabilities that essentially are regression um not all of them are regression type vulnerabilities others are uh, i would say some are vulnerabilities that were patched probably incorrectly um or were patched to a degree where an attacker is able to kind of uh identify a, a alternative attack path okay but others are vulnerabilities that have been reintroduced uh, due to bad source code, um, you know, synchronization between developers. So a developer might patch an issue on his side, uh, deploy the code, and then another developer might reintroduce the issue at a later time. So regression is very, uh, it's definitely a serious problem, you know. And I gotta say, man, it's uh, it's good to see these um, being discussed here. I mean, I think it's a good point. Yeah, no, it's a great story. So the the link will be in the description. You guys want to read any further and get more details. You sent me over a uh, article that says that a study found that there's no evidence that ransomware victims with cyber insurance pay up more often. So I know that's a misnomer that's passed around quite a bit. That uh, the guys, the the fraudsters running ransomware, um, you know, attack people with cyber insurance. Uh, because the insurance is more likely to pay. Apparently, yeah. based on this study, and they've they've looked at all the attacks. Uh, I, I, I think this was done in the UK. It was done by the UK's National Cyber Security Center um, and the Research Institute for Socio-Technical Cybersecurity, um, both in the UK, uh, done through uh, researchers at the Royal United Service Institute alongside with the University of Kent, uh, Oxford Brookes University. Um so I think it's based on attacks over there, uh, but they're seeing that it doesn't matter if you have cyber insurance or not. Um, ransomware is is coming after you. You know, and you know, here's the thing, right? So ransomware, um, unless it's like a very targeted campaign, 
for the most part, a lot of it is drive-bys. A lot of it is hit or miss. Attackers, I'm sure there are groups that are doing research. They're doing reconnaissance, information gathering. They're trying to identify which companies they could target that would pay best or more than likely, right? I'm sure that's all happening. But a lot of these other campaigns are drive-bys. If there's a zero day, a low-hanging fruit, a vulnerability, something that an attacker can leverage, maybe a, a, a leaked password database that has password, a corporate passwords to a VPN that doesn't have MFA. I mean, there's all that whole low-hanging fruits. I, I really can't tell what would be, I can't give you an estimated guess of what the percentages look like, but I'm sure they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, the numbers are, are maybe even similar. But yes, if, you know, an attacker is, and judging by this, 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 this study here, I'm very glad they did a study because I myself had, fe- uh, had kind of like a, I would say a feeling, but I've had customers tell me, yeah, we, we had, a, we had a, a breach and our insurance provider just paid immediately. In one instance, a good friend of mine who owns a business, they had to deal with a breach. And he told me that the insurance, the insurance provider just paid out and he didn't want to pay out. So there's, there's, really? I think, yeah. He didn't so, get to choose the insurance? No, chose? no, the insurance paid out. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the thing with him is he's a, he runs a nonprofit, so maybe that might be that might be the differentiator. I'm not sure if there's a difference between a nonprofit and like a for-profit um, cyber insurance policy. Sure, one's but, for profit and one's not for profit. It's right there yeah. in the name, Hector. <laughs> but aside from that, I'm not sure if like uh, because they're nonprofit, there's different rules. But from what he tells me, they were they did they did have a breach. He didn't really want to pay, and the provider paid. So I think the, you know there might be situations like that here as well. Um, I'm not sure if that'll skew the, the results of this report, but it's interesting to think about. So it was interesting in this read that they did find evidence that the cyber insurance policies that were exfiltrated during attack were then used to leverage nego- negotiations, and it did set higher ransoms. So those ransomware victims that had exfiltration as part of the, the attack and sure. had insurance policy, and they got their hands on the insurance policy, then used that policy against them. Um, and we're paid off. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that is part, you know, part of the methodology. These guys now they're going through and looking for, you know, what is the what are the limits on the payoff? Um, and I, we did a story a few weeks ago about how the attackers were looking at regulators in each country and finding out what a cyber attack, how much it costs to disclose a cyber attack, and they were coming in under that price. So it was cheap. It was remember that in the it's also in the UK. It okay. was it was cheaper for them to pay the ransom than it was to not pay it and disclose to the government that they had been breached. And and the the attackers used that against them. Interesting. Yeah, I remember that. That was an interesting so, story for sure. Yeah, it's 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 mind-blowing how much of a business this ransomware has become. Yesterday I was reading a story about the fact that uh there was a big uh, a breach that happened in a network of hospitals. I'm sure you've seen that uh, come across the wire. Um, I think there was total five, six hospitals that were impacted by the breach. It's upsetting because um, well, don't you know, be upset. No, well, it's upsetting to me because you know, right. you know, goddamn guys, you got to have some fucking, you got to have some sort of uh, uh, at the very least some common decency. You're gonna hit up a hospital. I mean, Honor amongst thieves, you mean? Some, some, something yeah, along those well, lines? yeah, no, I, I learned, I learned on my own that there, there's no honor among thieves. I get that, but man, you know, have some, have some sort of limits, man, because this is like, you know, you're affecting the people, and uh, you know, I can't even imagine a worst case scenario. I don't want to think about that. But they know that's the where you attack, where where people yeah. are most vulnerable and willing to mm-hmm. beg. Yeah. So, 
So, Hector, I read today, right before we started recording the show, that there is a big fight coming up. Uh, it looks like uh, Hacker in the Fed listener Elon Musk is going to be fighting uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. And I think we found the undercard for that fight. Oh, yeah? What's on the card? The, the undercard for that fight is going to be the Tenable CEO and Bill <laughs> Gates. Uh, because apparently Tenable CEO has accused Microsoft of negligence in addressing security flaws. And uh, their CEO, a guy named Yorin, Amit Yorin, he has said some very, very uh, difficult things for Microsoft to uh, just uh, sweep under the rug. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the some of the quotes here. I mean, it's pretty hardcore. And I gotta I gotta say something to the audience here. Uh, Chris and I know this very well, and then anybody that's in the industry knows this as well. A lot of security companies are you know afraid of conflict. Um, historically, they won't you know go out of their way um, and, and kind of point out that a company, a vendor, is handling the security improperly, right? Um, so the fact that we have the Tenable CEO, Tenable, for, for uh, guys you don't know, um, makes some, uh, some pretty solid security products. You may have heard of Nessus, right? That's a good example. Yeah, but some of these quotes here are pretty hardcore. Now, here's the thing about this. Depending on how you feel about it, and you, you, we're going to give you the links, ladies and gents, so you can definitely take a read for yourself. But here's the thing. As soon as this story went out, InfoSec Twitter and other platforms, folks on other platforms, started kind of resonating, saying, look, Microsoft has been dropping the ball recently with their security measures. There's been some breaches. There's been some some gaping holes. I mean, we covered a story not that long ago where somebody was able to take over like Azure apps. Remember that? There was a whole story on that. Sure. And all he had to do was make a couple small configuration settings on his end, and he could theoretically modify search results for the entirety of the search engine and user base. Um, so, yeah, this definitely is going to begin... Um, or I think it'll be like it'll have a cascading effect. I think the Tenable CEO is probably going to be the the first one to say something like like what he's said so far, and we're going to see a lot more come out of this. I think you even mentioned earlier that there might be some issues with the government, right? Yeah. So kind of let's get into the, the, what happened so that the audience know what happened from Tenable. So Tenable yeah. found a critical vulnerability in Microsoft's Azure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their cloud based stuff. And they informed Microsoft of the flaw uh, and then waited for the technology company, waited for Microsoft to address the issue. The flaw that they found, uh, amongst other things, allowed access to a bank's authentication secrets. For four months after it was disclosed to Microsoft, the vulnerability still wasn't patched. Um, So Microsoft acknowledged the issue the same day that it was disclosed on March 30th, and they confirmed it four days later. Uh, Tenable went back and asked for an update on June 27th uh, and was told on July 6th that it was fixed. Um, Tenable went and looked at that and says it was only uh, it was only a partial fix. Um, but then on July first, uh, sorry, July twenty first, Microsoft told Tenable that it would take until September twenty eighth for a complete fix. So Tenable agreed to withhold technical details and proofs of concepts until the twenty eighth, until September twenty eighth. That's one hundred twenty days that this vulnerability to this one bank that Tenable found was not reported, um, and I think. Uh, Tenable said uh, that it could it could affect many 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 more customers, and Microsoft was doing nothing to let those customers know that they could suffer this the same type of attack. Yeah, I mean, I see this a lot too. I mean, any anybody that's listening, that's a security researcher, and you've provided, um, you've identified a vulnerability in a product, you've contacted the vendor, um, 
you as the researcher, right, you, you're kind of working with the vendor based off of both of your disclosure policies. I think the average, and I'm sure, Chris, you've probably seen the same, is, is usually 90 days, right? Uh, three months to fix your stuff and get out a patch, and then I'm going to write a blog post about it. That's pretty much what researchers are kind of, um, you know, that, that's usually their approach. In this case, once you start going beyond 120, once you start lacking or missing communication with the research, in this case, Tenable, um, you start to create distrust within the community. And that distrust is the reason why you had things like the full disclosure mailing list, right? Um, full disclosure had many reasons why it existed. But one of them was the fact that, you know, companies and vendors were trying to hide security problems or security details. And this, again, full disclosure is a conversation for another time. There's a bunch of other reasons why that happened. But for a long time, if you were pissed at a vendor, you would just post something on uh, full disclosure anonymously and say, hey, I've identified a vulnerability in X. Here is the exploit. You know, that alone would force vendors to speed up the patching process. And I wouldn't be surprised if folks start doing this with Microsoft. But here's the problem with that, too. We're in 2023. We're not in 1999 anymore. Exploits actually cost or they're, they're va- they actually have value these days. So if you identify vulnerability in Microsoft or any of his products and, you know, you're upset with the vendor, you could either do a full disclosure, you could contact uh, CISA or, or the computer emergency response team, CERTs, um, or, you know, in the worst case scenarios, you might even leak it, right? Scary stuff, scary times. And, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm pro-researcher, Chris, you know that. And so um, I'm hoping that Microsoft could kind of go back to, to where it was 20 years ago when it tried to improve the way it dealt with security and dealt with the community. So you're talking about this 20 years ago, this letter that Bill Gates put out, the memo uh, about security? That's right. That's right. Damn. Yeah, we'll there put was, a link to it if everybody wants to read it. But yeah, Bill Gates goes out and really puts on, makes everyone at Microsoft read about cybersecurity and how important it is to the customers and to protect the customer's data. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is it is a hell of a write-up. Um, Bill Gates... You gotta remember, look at the time, right? So he uh, he sent out this memo back in two thousand two ish. This was this was like around the time of the IIS vulnerabilities, you know, where people were using a, a pro script by the name of msadc.pl uh, to essentially and pro is a programming language, by the way, um, to essentially take over IIS web servers around the internet. IIS is Microsoft's uh, web server software. And so, you know, there was a point where it was nonstop back-to-back vulnerabilities in that specific software that affected parts of the internet. There was a worm by the name of Code Red. Code Red was created for the purpose of spreading and propagating through various Microsoft vulnerabilities specific to the web server. It became so bad that, you know, I'm not sure if you guys remember back then, but it almost felt like the internet became slow because the worm had propagated so broadly and so wide that um, you know, it was affecting everyone. The moment you connected to the internet, you were getting scanned by hundreds of bots, uh, you know, per second. So yeah, uh, great read. I hope that um, vendors start to look at um, their security in a different light. And and for for the audience here, take a look at Bill Gates' uh, Bill Gates's memo uh, called "Trustworthy Computing." So, but just uh, just to put a cap on this, uh, Hector, I do want to put Microsoft, you know, kind of the, the the end result they found. So they were told by Tenable again on March 30th of this uh, this thing, 
this vulnerability. And then this last Friday, the company said that it had been fully addressed for all customers and uh, no customer remediation action is required and that all affected customers were notified starting on Friday. Mm. Um, and they did an investigation and the, uh, they identified anomalous access only by Tenable, the security researchers mm -hmm. that reported the incident, no other actors. So nobody else found this vulnerability and used it in that time frame. So I'm not yeah. saying that, you know, this is the best outcome you could have, uh, but it's not the ideal situation to have to look back and see if anybody else used a vulnerability that you were told about, you know, 120 days ago. So I think part of, uh, though, the article goes on and talks about part of um, uh, Yorin's, the Tenable CEO's uh, comments, come right after that a U.S. official, um, his information was hacked into by Chinese, uh, the Chinese again, um, supposedly, to steal email messages. Um, so this U.S. Uh, uh, government official, you know, they, they were going around shitting on Microsoft this, this week, too. Um, so maybe that kind of uh, gave Yorin some a little bit of, uh, uh, of the oomph he needed to go, go out public with it. Yeah. A little pep in his step, you know how that yeah, goes. Yeah. So, but yeah, no big, big props to him for calling out Microsoft. You know, um, it, it's, it's really hard as a, as a player in the cybersecurity space to, to say Microsoft is doing something wrong, but, but, but good for him calling them out. It's also very risky. Okay. It's risky for like a small to medium sized security business. Tenable is a multi-billion dollar business now. So, when their CEO has to say something, you know, people are going to listen. So big shout out to him for taking that risk. Now, I have a question for the audience, and I would love for their opinions, or I guess it's my, my reach out to the audience. How do we deal with security vendors or, or software vendors that have terrible track records with security in their products? I know Chris and I, we might differ in some ways. Okay, I know Chris is more on the smaller government side of things. I know that, you know, I, I would rather I would rather something to happen than not, right? And I think I think you know, our opinion is different in some ways. But how do you feel? Like if you're buying a product, and that product is used to compromise your network, your corporate environment, you know, would you like to see that there's some consequences on the vendor side? Do you would like to see that some sort of government or agency or something or somebody? Don't buy that product, though. I mean, that's what capitalism is. Like, yeah. If the product is crap, you don't buy it. And that's how, like, a good product at a, you know, better products at a better mm -hmm. value uh, bubbles to the top. That's capitalism. That's that is the, capitalism, and I, and I agree with that. But then you have a problem where if you go to Best Buy or Target to buy a computer right now, you don't have the option to choose Linux as an alternative. You don't? You have, you can, you have you the can't option. Buy Linux? You can, well, it depends on the store, but... You know, you're not going to buy it in Target, right? You say, uh, I, I, I guess not. Yeah, I just bought a laptop for my son to take to college, and uh, and I, he had the option. I, he could, I could have gotten him, uh, you know, yeah, a Chromebook. Yeah, you could have gotten him a no. Chromebook, right? No, uh, he, I, I bought him. I bought him an X1, and and it, it, you can get it with with Linux on it. Oh, okay. Well, hmm. I mean, I'm sure his school would not have liked that, you know, because. Uh, <laughs> You know, they probably have everything is Windows based and all that, but but he could have found a way of running a VM or something if he needed yeah, to. Yeah, no, but I guess my point is not this screw Linux, right? I love Linux, but that's not my Man. point. My point here is that, you know, when you're going to a store and you're purchasing something, a computer, more than likely it's going to have Windows. Now, if you want to spend a couple extra bucks, you can buy yourself a Mac. Now you're using Unix. Cool. But now you're dealing with whatever security issues that the vendor is, is you know, associating with that product that they're selling you, right? 
So if there's if you're getting Windows or you're getting we can even include Linux there with Google and, and Chromebooks. You're buying Chromebooks, you you purchase it, you go to work, you go to school, and there's a zero day in you know your Chromebook for the next six months is one brand new zero day that comes out of each month. Then what's the issue? Like how how, how are we supposed to deal with vendors when that happens? Especially when there's no consequences currently. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a controversial question that I think yeah. folks should think about. And I would love to hear some answers. I would love to hear some responses. To me, the consequences should be that you the product isn't bought. But yeah, no, I hear you. You can't go to Target and buy a non-Windows computer. I got you. I know it's a it's that it, they need to change. Yeah, and and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the you know the point that you made, right? Because I don't want to. This is not hyper focused on Microsoft, right? I, I probably use that as a bad example. But if I go to a store and all I have is Chromebook, MacBook or an X1 with Windows or whatever, right? Is that really capitalism? Is that really a free market? My options are very limited. And I'm dealing with three vendors that have a history of security issues, right? So, yeah, it's it's um, it's a complex problem. I'm not sure you can find an answer to this. But I'm really glad that folks are actually questioning some of these vendors about the security practices. SMS traffic pumping fraud. Can you explain uh, to the audience what a SMS traffic pumping fraud looks like? Yeah. So in, in layman's terms, right, let's this this really simplify this. You have a website or an application and you have a bunch of followers or, 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 or accounts, users. You have a community. Um, and let's say your community is about 20,000 large. You have 20,000 members on your website and they're buying your products or they're just hanging out with you and you guys have a forum of some sorts. Awesome. Now, what happens when you start to introduce, um, at the very least, SMS texting for uh, confirmation codes or uh, password resets? Or one-time passwords? Or one-time passwords. Yeah, that's a great one. So what you're requiring, you, your, your website now is requiring to send out to your customers some sort of SMS traffic for passcode, 2FA, one-time passwords. Okay. Yeah, anything. Even now, what, ha it, yep, mm -hmm. what happens next? Yeah, so what happens next is is that if an attacker, if, if the bad guy, the fraudster in this case, is able to build a relationship with a, a, a service provider that is offering paid subscription or paid phone numbers, um, and they look like any normal phone number. It could be like, you know, it, look, it may look like your, 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 your family member's phone numbers, okay? Same area code and so on. They add these phone numbers to your platform, and every time your platform sends an email, or sorry, a text message to that phone number, your service provider is getting charged. And eventually it's going to come back to you because your service provider is going to say, well, you've had 50,000 paid text messages this month, so here's what you owe us. And that's pretty much the gist of it. It is a fraud where users are using uh, essentially paid um, phone numbers for text messages, notifications, and alerts. So it could be two different levels. It could be uh, a nuisance, like, um, well, you know, whereas I'm not making any money off this as the fraudster, but it's causing your company to be, uh, to pay, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars possibly if, if, sure. if enough of these text messages go through. Mm -hmm. It could be used as like sort of like a, a corporate attack, one corporation on another. 
Um, if you're my competition and I'm making you spend, you know, a million dollars a month on SMS charges, you know, you're going to you're going to lose out in the long run. Absolutely. But you're saying that there's another level to it, too, where these fraudsters that, that send these messages that uh, or cause your system to send mm -hmm. messages that cost money, they could have a, a deal or something set up with a uh, mobile network operator. I guess in the article, they're called MNO. Yeah. Um, that, that then the fraudster gets a piece of it. Absolutely. And from what we've seen, you know, uh, not only from this article, but other sources, uh, there are these rogue MNOs that will uh, pay a percentage of some of the money that's, that's generated as a result of these text messages. I think the most famous example is Twitter. Remember, we had the whole conflict with Elon Musk disabling SMS uh, multi-factor authentication. Right. Well, we didn't have a conflict. I think I just I I, I agreed with it. I think you agreed with it too. Yeah, it was uh, a good a good move for him to make. And, and I know Elon listens to the show, so th maybe this is why. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, I definitely agree for several reasons. I think the the main reason is SMS is really not secure anymore, right? Or yeah. it's, it's not secure enough. Um, but no. But from a business perspective, why are we going to offer a feature that's costing us? tens of millions of dollars a year. So that was Elon Musk's argument. And a lot of folks in the industry caught conflict with that. Well, we should offer some sort of protection, some sort of mechanism to help folks with, uh, you know, their, uh, their account security. But yes, this fraud exists. It is a thing. Um, and people are making money off of it. And your company not, might not be victimized on it right now, but it could happen tomorrow. It literally could just be someone could use it against you just like that. And mm -hmm. then you're, you're, rate from your your charge from your um service provider mm -hmm. could be outrageous oh absolutely you may not have any idea until you get that end of month invoice yeah so um this is a great write-up ladies and gents definitely take a look at the link uh big shout out to twilio for really demystifying this attack further yeah and, and great for them for putting some uh some possibilities of ways of sort of determining or minimizing this attack against you sure. um you know some of those include you know uh look for adjacent numbers so you know mm. phone numbers that are sequential one after another mm -hmm. um you know kill or or dis don't use uh remote destination countries if you're not doing business with let's say you know vietnam kill all phone numbers or that you know that are, are associated with vietnam for the system yeah. Um, if you're sending SMS for a one-time password, make people set up something to complete a verification. Have them mm -hmm. enter their email address. Mm -hmm. You know, make it harder for just a, a push button for the SMS to go out. Yeah. Um, geo permissions again for countries you don't use. Set rate limits. You mm -hmm. know, accounts can only have make these requests once every ten seconds. Um, yeah. Delays in, in verifications, um, and then just you know, you know monitor what's going on in your system what's going on the article has a, a bunch of other good helpful things that you guys should set up for your system um but you know a really good article thanks for sending that over hector yeah i think it's a good write-up and i would i would like to make a good um i would like to provide some visualization for the audience here now let's replace sms with emails and now imagine every time you sent an email out you personally you had to pay money to uh send that email or receive the email yeah, um, to receive an email. Can yeah. you imagine if you had to pay every time you received an email? Oh, oh yeah, that that would be insane. I think emails would like die out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paying to receive emails. I'm sorry. 
So, so. yeah, I mean, that's a great, um, great idea to, I mean, a great article to kind of look through. And I love these kind of attacks because they're outside the box. You know, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew this was a thing, Chris, right? But it wasn't until like, like Twitter highlighted it that I didn't see it as that big of a deal. Now it makes sense. Do you love it because of like the criminal ingeniousness of it? Well, because it's like we're, we're so used to SMS and texting each other. And then like if someone says there's a, a random text message, you know, I ignore random text messages. But some people like to respond back like, hey, who's this? Boom. You just got charged a dollar for that text. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's this. This is a thing that exists. And uh, it's not as widespread because you know, these fraudsters are trying to keep it on the down low. They're trying to make some money before it gets uh, um, too exposed, I guess. All right, so uh, apparently there's a new way that they're stealing our uh, passwords. Uh, oh. new, new acoustic attack see, uh, steals data from keystrokes with 95% accuracy. Wow. So a team of researchers in British universities, big shout out to British universities on this episode this week. Yeah. Um, they trained a deep learning model, AI, whatever you want to call it, um, that could steal data from keyboard strokes. Um, from overhearing keyboard strokes from the microphones that we all have yeah. uh, near our desk or mm-hmm. on our desk for our Zoom meetings and all that with a 95% accuracy. Wow. Um, so then they, they just use the software Zoom to train the AI uh, for the sound uh, algorithm. Uh, the predictions drop down to 93%, and that's just using Zoom that we all have. Um, so what they were able to do is to match each key to its unique sound when it was clicked or pressed um, and then record those sounds and slow it down and AI would then take each individual sound and could give back a keystroke logger essentially um, just from the sound they heard across the microphone where part of it helped out was like in Zoom if they were to use chat in a window so they could hear the sound and know the key that it taught the algorithm so much more better and it, it confirmed it you know as you type a message out um, and they hear each sound of it going. It's a, it's a pretty good attack. I, I kind of like it, Hector. No, I think this is very cool. Big shout out to the researchers that, you know, even even thought of this idea. We've had researchers from various organizations and universities think of ways to, you know, eavesdropping attacks, right? Not only with keystrokes, but also with screens. I mean, you remember the famous Van Eck theory on on using uh, on being able to predict what's on someone's screen from afar, um, or well, not afar from, a, but from a closer distance. So theoretically, you could be in a hotel room, kind of you know typing away at your old CRT, and then someone in the next room could be listening and and uh, picking up you know uh, electromagnetic anomalies and, and kind of generating you know you're kind of recreating your screen in the other room. Um, so we've had folks do a lot of research into this. I have never really seen a practical exploit on this yet, right? But I'm sure that at some point we're going to see something. And this kind of research is very important for us as a society so we can start to identify potential risks, especially when we're doing like uh, um, threat modeling or, you know, you guys, you guys, you know, Chris, you told me just, you guys just opened up a new office. Now that you know about the story and, you know, I'm not sure how, you, I'm not sure how your, your office is uh, oriented, but let's say... You know, your office is part of like an open office environment. So now, now that you know the story and you, you know you're going to have employees typing up a storm in your office, now you have to kind of, kind of part, put this as part of your uh, threat model. Yeah, we removed all the keyboards. No more keyboards anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just mice. That's it. <laughs> That's it. All you can do is click on things. No more, no more <laughs> typing letters. 
Oh, that's great. It's not a bad idea. I think you just created a new billion dollar industry. No, I, I think I like the part that like, so COVID happens and mm-hmm. our response to it is everyone installs a microphone next to their computer now so they can still keep working. Mm-hmm. And so now we have this new attack vector into our homes, these listening devices that sit right next to our keyboards. Um, I, I like the evolution of these attacks and, and trying to look at it that way. I think it's cool. So, yeah, great read for you guys to look at. They, they did have a couple ways you could probably, you know, help soften this attack uh, or, or fortify yourself against it. Um, they said try altering typing styles. So, you know, switch your hands, put your right hand on the left side, your left hand on the right side. I tried that. That's really hard to type. Uh, the space bar is the hardest, to be honest with you on that one. Use software to reproduce keystroke sounds. Can you imagine sitting in an office hearing fake clicking sounds in the background all day long? <laughs> Oh my goodness, that'd be horrible. Oh um, man, yeah. I, I feel like that'll introduce like so many horrors into my mental health. Yeah. <laughs> and then they said util- utilizing password managers, so, um, so you don't have to type them in. You can just kind of click them in. But you know, how many how many weeks do we do where password managers have been hacked and all that? So yeah. Um, I do like password managers overall. Um, I think the you know password managers force you to have complex passwords. You know where webs some websites don't. You know, so there are good things to password managers. Don't get me wrong on that one, but I don't know if that's this is the end all be all you know uh, solution to keyboards. But let's get some listener questions. We got some a lot of listener questions. Okay. If we don't get to yours this week, we'll try to get in the, in the week coming up. So the first one comes from uh, George, who I think is in Greece. Uh, George says, uh, love the show. Uh, please keep up the good work. Uh, my question is, what happens to a company after it's been blacklisted by the by the USA? Wow. Uh, and he sent over a link, link to the uh, United States um, Commerce Department, Bureau yeah. of Industry and Security, um, that blacklisted uh, four different companies for um, dealing with exploits that, that – um, threaten the privacy and security of individuals and organizations. Mm-hmm. So um, when you do certain things within the United States, uh, I know these, even my company, um, we do a thing called conflict checks. Um, mm. So before we take on a new customer or deal with that, um, we go through things. And one of them is this website, the, the Bureau of Industry and Security, to see if that customer or potential client um, is part of a, a United States blacklisted site. Um, and so we wouldn't do we wouldn't do business or take them on as a customer um, if that was that um, one of the I think the, the big examples that we can say is Kaspersky, which is a Russian based security company. A few years ago, they were added to a blacklist uh, blacklisted by the USA That's for right. the the government products. So mm-hmm. um, Kaspersky software cannot be on any government owned uh, computer or computer network. So it doesn't mean that United States citizens can't use it if they want to. Uh, it means that the federal government can't use it. Um, so there's different lists uh, that you get put on. Um, and this one is, you know, that uh, a big U.S. company or any U.S. company should not be do, stop sending uh, any sort of data or hardware or software to these four companies that were added to here that would further add to their uh, using cyber exploits to gain access to to private information i myself like i remember the whole kapersky drama like i remember i remember when that came out when that when i was a thing and i think it still is right yeah no it's certainly still a thing you you cannot have kaspersky software on uh any u.s owned device sure. by u.s government owned device 
Oh, yeah. And I remember the consensus from the security industry was very much half and half, right? You had a lot of folks who were like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you had other folks like, no, that's that's not right. I mean, Kaspersky is a, is a private corporation. They're not part of the, the, the Russian government. Um, so why is this even happening, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an argument that probably goes beyond my own scope. But I think that... Um, it's always interesting to, interesting to see when these companies are indeed bans or blocked or blacklisted, rather. I see a couple companies here, um, and it seems like one may be – oh, it seems like there's two companies, but they have four locations together, right? Um, one in Greece, one in Hungary, one in Ireland, and one in North Macedonia. Now I'm curious as to who these companies are and what they do. Dig a little bit in. I, I sent you the link for uh, looking at them and what's going on, but but yeah. So hopefully, George, that answers your question on sure. what they did on uh, what happens if you're added to a blacklist in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I said it before. I said George's question. So if you want to reach out to us, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. Uh, we'd love to get your questions. So oh, yeah. the next question, Hector, is right for you. It's right in your wheelhouse, and it was nice. sent in by Skunkfoot. <laughs> Okay. Um, I don't think that's his real name, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> Skunkfuck asks, uh, what are your thoughts on the value of certifications such as Hack the Boxes Certified Penetration Testing Specialist and Certified Bug Bounty Hunter and Try Hack Me's SOC Level 1 when it comes to seeking out employment opportunities? Sure. Is it better to focus on more industry-recognized certs such as CompTIA's Security Plus and Pentest Plus? or EC Council's Certified Ethical Hacker. Hector, what are your opinions? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because it is it is always um, something that comes up in debate. Well, let's start with, the, let's start with the, the entry level issue, right? The entry issue is, well, are certifications really required, honestly? When we had the conversation with Bill Gardner a while back, um, you know, he did a great job at explaining the importance of certifications, and it's not necessarily just about having a certification, um, but it also helps you with obtaining jobs, right? When, it, when, when someone's looking at your resume and interviewing you and they see that, hey, you've been doing security research for the last 10 years, um, but you haven't worked in the security industry during those 10 years, so what exactly were you doing? Uh, do you have any certifications? Well, that brings us to the argument. Are certifications useful in getting hired? And the answer is yes, in many ways, they are. It also depends on the kind of certification, and it depends on the company that's hiring you and what they're looking for. You know, there are a lot of variables to it, but they do not hurt you. Even if you were to get, you know, let's say the, let's say the hack the box certifications that were mentioned here, the CPTS and so on. You know what that tells your employer? That tells your employer or potential employer that you've made the effort to study on that platform. That means that you've taken time to identify vulnerabilities and exploit them. You probably have done write-ups, which is great for communication skills, if, especially if you're going for like a pen tester job. Um, and it also tells them that you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, right? Because you have to pay for some of these, especially the OSCP from offensive security. So, you know, I'm not going to say that the most expensive certifications help you the most because that's not really the case because I know a certification more expensive than OSCP, than OSCP that are quote unquote less respectable or less, or maybe uh, um, you know less looked upon in favor than OSCP, uh, and they're way more expensive. But it really depends on scenario. So if you're trying to get a pen testing job, any of these here in this question are completely fine. 
okay? Um, if you're going into a management position and you want to be like a cybersecurity program manager, that's a little bit different. And if you if we go, if you walk into that room with the certifications you have here in this email, in this question, the CISO and the CEO that are in, in interviewing you for the position are probably saying, well, he has a lot of offensive security skills and it shows by all of the certificates that he has. Does he have management skills? Does she have any sort of management or um, you know policy skills? Uh, have they worked before in that position? I don't even see a CISSP on here, right? So it really depends on the scenario. I personally think, and, and trust me, I was one of those guys who said, ah, eh, certifications, you don't need them. But now that I see a lot of my friends or even like people that I've mentored trying to get jobs and they don't have the experience, they don't have the the, the, the backgrounds or accolades, they're having a rough time. So I think if if that's what you're trying to do, get a job in pen testing or similar, the search that you mentioned will absolutely help you. Let me ask you, Hector. Sure. Do you see a difference in any of these certs or any of the the ones? The what's I'm what I'm looking for is the difference is getting your foot into the door and starting the job. Yeah. Versus useful once you're on the job. Yeah. So a lot of these that are here on this list um, are the ones that will help you get your foot in the door. Okay. But then you have those like this OSCP there that will be useful to you because in order for you to pass OSCP, you have to do a bunch of different campaigns uh, or, or, or different machines, virtual machines you have to compromise with different services. You have to compromise with different attack vectors. You have to engage or leverage. Um, you may even have to do some lateral movement in some of these cases just in order for you to pass the OSCP. But also the OSCP is not question and answers. The OSCP is, Hey, you know, what, uh, what are the lessons you learned from this machine? What's your write-up on compromising this machine? Um, and you have to provide detail, detailed instructions on how you did it, when you did it. Here's evidence. Here's a proof of uh, a concept. And here's a screenshot. So it is very much involved and it's well worth the price. Uh, but even the, the hack-the-box hack certifications are very similar. Um, they may not be as extensive if any of you would log into hack the box or try hack me or similar, you know that you have to kind of go through these different virtual machine environments and come up with attack paths and, and be able to leverage those before you can move forward to the next one. Okay. So yeah, very useful stuff here. And I think that they all play the different roles. Very informative. Thank you, Hector. Yes, sir. Uh, so the next one we got is from Jope. And I, sorry if I mispronounced that it's J O E P. Would you pronounce it Jope, Hector? Uh, I would hope so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Jope from Holland, it says, Hi, Chris and Hector. First of all, thank you for your great podcast. It's both entertaining as well as informative. Making people aware of cybersecurity is paramount, as the human part is often the weakest link. I would love to hear your opinion and knowledge of the existence of backdoors uh, in consumer electronics, in firmware, or even hardware. Uh, and so this question came to Jope because he was installing a Wi-Fi mesh um, and one of his access points, he was looking to hit his uh, WPS button. And the WPS is the Wi-Fi protected setup. So instead of uh, putting... You know, instead of going around and putting the username and password into all the different devices, you can hit physically hit this button on the device, uh, and it searches for new new things inside your house, and it'll pair it up, uh, and just click a button to make it easier. Um, it's just an easier way of setting it up. So, but Joe found that that button wasn't on his access point, and he found that it was in a software uh, based uh, approach, um, and 
he on that software on his phone. He did not have to even be connected to the network in order to click that Wi-Fi protected setup. Uh, and again, that button should be a physical button that you actually have to have your hands on the running router in order to do it. And so Joe wants to know, do you think there are backdoors in place in many electronics, both software and hardware? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And we have, you know, history that answers the question for you. Um, and, and the answer is pretty much, I would say in, in most, right? But I would say many. So I'm going to go with your, with your specific question. In many electronics, Absolutely. They do exist. I mean, we just did a story not that long ago where there were some backdoors and some products. Um, there are other stories on in the news right now that discuss backdoors and hardware solutions. And, you know, in fact, Chris, I had a question for you a long time ago, probably several months ago, not too long. But I remember asking you, hey, so when is it, so when you guys start to onboard software or computers into the FBI, do you guys ever break that stuff down to try to see if you find backdoors? And I, I think I asked you that question offline, Chris. Is that something you can answer here? The answer is yes, of course. Um, I know, like, specialized software, you have to provide the source code. Mm. Uh, and that source code better match what we find on the software. Uh, I know historically there's been hardware devices uh and the fbi cracks them open and if it doesn't match the specifications if uh, there's an extra chip or something somewhere sure. all those devices get run over by a steamroller wow uh, yeah so i i've seen it or i've seen where even more chips have been removed from thousands of devices uh, because it doesn't match the specifications of what it should be. So, uh, yes, the, the the Bureau is very good about the the security of the devices and software. Big shout out to that. And that, that really raises my confidence. I'm very happy that you guys do that um, because the reality is, is that, you know, again, a lot of these products, they come from abroad. We're purchasing them. Price is good. We're like, yeah, screw it. I'm going to plug it into my network. But how often do consumers really just take these things apart and look for potential backdoors, that's one. Two, what what would they actually look for? Like, there's not going to be a, a, an extra chip on the board that clearly states in red, bold letters, backdoor chip, right? But going back to Job's question here, we've had evidence in the history of backdoors in, uh, in products before, um, and I, unfortunately, I think it's going to continue happening in the future, um, especially if you don't control your own supply chain, and especially if you're you're buying from, you know, essentially resellers or um, even refurbishing companies. You know, we read a story not that long ago where uh, network equipment was being sold with extra chips beyond the specs of the original product. And that's very problematic. Yeah. yeah to be honest, this one with Job's question, this, this access point probably didn't do it in some, some sort of, uh, you know, negligent way um you know a lot of these products that people want plug and play they want to you know they're making a product that they can just plug an access point in um and connect their phone to it you know and so i, I think we you know uh, one of the best examples i remember from the past on that one is the um uh, the ring alarm system hack um where it had you know it had security features on there uh, but you had to turn them on they suffered a credential stuffing attack, which means someone went out there and used all the stolen username and passwords and just tried them against everything. Um, and Ring didn't turn off the number of tries you can do to try to get into a device. Um, and so they were vulnerable to what's called credential stuffing. Um, there was a, a switch. There's a toggle within the security settings where you could turn that on. 
Mm. Um, but I think Ring decided, hey, most people want this device because of how easy it is. You know, exactly. uh, if you have a security, a home security device, I mean, up until before Ring, you had to run wires through your walls and you had to have new telephone lines and all this. And so, yeah. And so Ring wanted to, hey, you stick these on the once on a window and one on a on a the windowsill, and you have a security system. Let's make it easy. Well, let's not add cybersecurity on top of that, where you know <laughs> have to make it difficult. So, the, their whole thing was about easy. But the problem with that is it opened up a vulnerability um, to a cyber attack. Sure. Um, and I, I think that's probably what happened here with Jope's, uh, you know, router or access point. You know, he just they're trying to make it easy for the people to buy their device at the local store and just plug it into their network and it works. That's right. So Yeah, I would say the security is definitely not convenient. And sometimes it no. can complicate matters. So, yeah, um, you, that was a perfect example you gave, Chris. I got to give you a shout out on that. Um, Big shout out to me this week. That's from right. Hector. Big uh, shout out to Chris. <laughs> that better be the title of the story. Big shout out to me. Yeah. <laughs> So Hector, the next this next one I just thought was a cool. So it's 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 not really a question, um, and I'll probably handle it a little bit more offline instead of reading the whole thing out. Sure. Um, so a long time ago, a long time ago, like this show has been going on for decades. Um, <laughs> early on in the show, we had a listener, Alan, reach out to us, and he asked for some advice about getting into cybersecurity. Um, and he, you know, he had aspirations. He was shooting for the moon and get, looking for his dream job. And I'm sure Hector gave him some great advice. And I probably gave him something to just uh, move along. And then and th so it happened. And then a couple of weeks ago, we had another listener write into the show, Ethan. And Ethan was talking about the tests you take in order to get into the government and to get in, particularly into the NSA. Um, and Ethan went and took the test and he didn't feel so confident about it and wanted to know if Hector and I had any advice about it. We probably gave him not so good advice. Who knows on that one either, Hector. Well, anyways, Alan wrote back in. I remember Alan is the first one that was, you know, wanted information to how to get into the industry. Well, Alan landed a spot with the NSA. Woo! So Congratulations. Alan reached out to us for advice. I'm not saying our advice has got Alan the spot. Alan worked hard and he got there. But now we got a guy inside the NSA is a hacker in the Fed listener. Um, so it's it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, and Alan has shared some, you know, advice for Ethan about taking the test. Um, and I'll and I'll reach out to Ethan and share some of Alan's words because he did share a lot. But you know, to sum up what Alan says in his emails, that at the end of the day, it just it's just like any job. I think from my chat with recruiter, I summarized that they have a profile of a very specific person they're looking for. They likely can considers everything from technical skills to cultural fit. The best individual can do an individual can do is say, this is me. This is what I have to offer. If you like me, please take, take me. If you don't, you know, you don't. So um, that's Alan's best advice to Ethan. Don't try to overthink the test. Don't try to overdo the test. Answer what you know, answer it thoroughly, um, have a plan going into it, but don't bullshit through some of it because they're going to, they're going to see through the bullshit. I know in the FBI, the FBI has like their process involves a phase one and a phase two test. And the phase one test is a series of, I don't know, it's like a hundred or 200 questions and they're, they're multiple choice, you know, and there's some cons consistency to it. It gives you scenarios. What would you do and all that? And they're going to know if you're bullshitting and you're going to get thrown out. If so, you answer them the way you feel that you answer. And it's good. It's a good thing because, you know, if you're not 
the right personality to be an FBI agent or be in the NSA, you, you shouldn't fight to be there. Um, you don't want to waste years of your life trying to get to this thing that's not for you. Really proud of Alan. Way to go, Alan. You know, you got a great spot. Um, Ethan, I'll share Alan's words with you in an email. Um, but but I just thought this was a, a really cool story that, that Hacker and the Fed, you know, played a small part of. Yeah, that's beautiful. And a big shout out to Alan. Again, congratulations. Super proud of you. And thank you again for kind of reaching back out, letting us know that you got the job, but also that, you know, you're willing to share the knowledge, man. And, um, and, and that's, that's a great motivator, not only for me, but I hope for the rest of the audience that if you want to get into this industry or, um, you know, whatever job it is you're looking for, you know, just go for it and um, just talk to folks. Trust me. It's not the 1990s anymore where you had to kind of go through IRC and Discord. Well, they didn't have Discord back then. But you got to like, you know, kind of figure out your way on your own without much resources. Um, there's a lot of great folks out there that are willing to teach or at, at the very least have a discussion. Um, so, yeah, big shout out to Alan. Big shout out to Ethan. So, Hector, Rachel reached out. She says, is it normal for a cybersecurity practitioner to avoid owning stocks in companies where timing of cyber events and announcements could seriously affect the stock price? I think this comes off of our story last week of the SEC changing the rules of companies announcing uh, that a cyber event or a cyber incident, they call it, uh, has happened. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm very happy to Rachel. I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked that you asked that question because it is – it is something that you know I've thought about so many times, especially when I'm dealing with massive companies that are publicly traded. Um, I'll give you my answer right now, and I, and I know Chris will probably give a, a better answer here or, or his own uh, perspective. But my answer on this is I do not purchase uh, any sort of uh, stake in stocks, equity, anything in any of my in any of, of my customers' um, um, stocks, especially if it's publicly traded just to avoid any conflict with the SEC. It, it definitely comes up, though, right? There are times when I'm like, damn, I want to invest in this company. And then, you know, two months later, I got a contract with them. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's a dud now if I haven't purchased yet. Because any findings that I have, maybe I'm wrong. If there's anybody in the industry uh, or, or even in, in, in the securities industry that could answer this question for me, um, you know, please feel free to do so. But I would think that if, I, if I'm doing a pen test and I find like 18 critical vulnerabilities and then I'm like, okay, yeah, this company is going to you know, probably have to deal with this. So I'm going to a, buy a bunch of put options against, this comp against the company. I mean, I would, I would think that's kind of like insider trading. Uh, but then I don't know. Right. I, I would think it is. Again, yeah. I'm not a SEC lawyer or I'm not a you know a securities guy. But, yeah, no, I, I definitely think you have information that the public don't, doesn't have. And so to act upon that and financially gain from it, uh, it would be considered inside trading. Um, yeah, I, I'm the same way, you know, Rachel, that, that yeah, I, do, I do what Hector does. I don't invest in, in companies that, that I potentially am going to work on, work for, work against, have in, any information. So doing security work you gain access to a very sensitive information in companies, not just their security posture. Um, you have access to all their networks and internal conversations and that sort sure. of thing. So I don't do any investing. Um, I pay a person um, uh, to invest. I don't really know where my positions are. Um, I keep track, you know, on a weekly basis or so of losses and gains, but I don't know individual stocks that I personally own. You know, I think this is an issue, and I know Rachel's question was about cybersecurity practitioners, but, you know, it's come up in politics recently. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think it's very timely. I think it's something that our 
you know, that people, voters should look into. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're voting for a politician who has a better batting average um, than, you know, uh, professional stock traders, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, something weird's going on there. But, this, this but I, I'm too nervous personally to have anything that even looks like insider trading. Exactly. So I don't, I don't do a part of it. So. Yeah, I, I think you and I are aligned there. I, I think we both don't want any issues at all with these. With nope. that, uh, with <laughs> I, I don't want to have to go through and be audited and all that. And so yeah. um, the SEC is very good at their jobs um, and anomalies stick out. Mm. Um, so when someone makes a lot of money very quickly in the stock market, um, trust me, you're going to probably get a call soon. That's right. So, Rachel, I had another question. This will be our last one for the week, Hector, sure. and then I'll, I'll let you go and uh, not travel anywhere this week after the <laughs> Rachel's last question. Career type advice question here, uh, broader than just specific story. Had a security-related email where the top item was an attention-grabbing headline uh, that all the models of CPUs could leak data because of this newly discovered vulnerability. Very scary situation Rachel was facing. On Very scary. But after details of the research and the side channel attacks, we get to the last paragraph where in real world conditions, the leak might work out to about one bit a year. Mm. So it could leak one bit, a, a one and <laughs> or a zero a year. Um, so without downplaying real attacks or researchers work, loads of cyber coverage is exactly like that. How do you constantly read it without your brain automatically making you become kind of a jerk? Well, too late on that, Rachel. I'm already a jerk. <laughs> Obviously, you've never met me. Um, I read lie. the whole story. No, it's, just, it's true. I'm a jerk. Um, I read the whole story, and I am smarter and better informed than the other people who believe the headline. I spot the hype. I spot the mm -hmm. discrepancies and so forth. Sure. So, Rachel, welcome to our world. Yeah. Uh, I think just last <laughs> week, uh, Hector sent me over a story from a very reputable uh, technology. Uh, I don't I don't know what I want to call it. I'm, I'm holding my tongue on that. <laughs> that was about uh, how our satellites were going to all be hacked into um, and how so they're so vulnerable. Yeah. And then you read the whole article and you find out they looked at three satellites. Mm hmm. Of three satellites, they determine that all of our satellites are going to be hacked into. Yeah. So, Rachel, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, a lot of cybersecurity headlines are out there to scare you and make you buy new cybersecurity products. Yeah. You know, I, I who do we talk to? Who was your friend that uh, had some play in uh, Ukraine? Oh, that was Jeffrey Carr. Jeff Carth. Great episode on that. Jeff really opened my eyes that, mm. you know, the Russian hacking scene and how much they're on the attack and all that mm -hmm. may be tweaked a little. You know, prior to the attack, uh, their attack and use of cyber yeah. in Ukraine, you know, everyone's like, oh, Russian hackers this, Russian hackers that. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, they're all going to be taken over. And then I, we had that interview with Jeff and he was like, Eh, that might be fake. And I'm like, it was very eye-opening to me. Yeah, because one of the things that we noticed is that even prior to the invasion, all you heard was Russian hacker this, Russian hacker that, big campaign here, big campaign there. And then the conflict in Ukraine, you know, kind of went forward and the news kind of dried up on that in that that field, right? We saw some stuff come out. We saw some emails and some accounts were compromised and some organizations or some agencies were ransomware or wiped, right? Um, but it wasn't as widespread as, as we were sold. So I think that, Chris, uh, uh, 
uh, feel free to correct me if I'm uh, here if I'm wrong, that I feel like we become cynical in a way to a lot of these stories. That we we kind of Jerks. read through it. Yeah, right. I know I read through my stories. You read through the stories. We kind of have, and we, and we meet somewhere in the middle. I say, look, what do you think about this? I, I think this is BS. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, let's drop it. So, yeah, Rachel, I think it's more than just cyber. Um, I think there's a lot of media out there. I can officially say that I don't think I've ever read a media thing about me, except maybe Josh Bierman's article in, he did a two-part article about Silk Road. Um, that was in Wired. And Nick Bilton's book, American Camping. Outside of those, I've never read a news article that I was a part of that was 100% true. There was always some sort of mistake or some something else in there. Have Have you ever read? Do you read anything about yourself, Hector? I have in the past, especially and when. Yeah, especially have when you found an article that's a hundred percent true. No, I would say, I would say most of them. You know, most of them, if they were factual, yeah, then yeah, they're true. Um, but then once once the journalist goes beyond facts and they start adding opinions or they start adding extra facts or extra extra little points to make, right? It just it just takes a broad left turn um i mean there's i've read stuff about me that uh that i just shake my head i'm like wow like how, where did that come from you know who, who did you speak for who did you speak to for that because that's not really true in fact that's not true at all so yeah we media is, is is weird i like to look for authors or publications that really rely on facts i'm boring maybe maybe i'm maybe i'm the boring person here but if I want to, if I want to read a story, I would rather just see, see a bunch of bullet points with fact, key points and facts, right? Rather than opinion. If I want an opinion, I would go to like someone's personal blog and see what they what they have to say about it. But that's just me. So Rachel, I'm I'm proud that you uh, can pick out the bullshit now uh, when you read these articles and these headlines are put out there just to scare people that don't read the full article and or don't understand what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean you're better off being better informed and really know what's going on and what's out there. So, so good on you for uh, having the education to be able to, to see through that. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So again, we love the questions. We love the variety that you guys sent out. We love when one listener reaches out to help another listener. Um, and, Definitely love, you know, when Alan reaches out and says he's a big success and he nailed his dream job at, at the NSA. So good job, Alan, um, on that. So if you want to reach out to us, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. Great questions this week. So also, again, just to pimp the product a little bit, you know, again, we have merchandise, you know, go to hackerinthefed.com, get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise. we got hoodies, T-shirts, custom orders. We offer international shipping. Again, support the show, guys. You know, we, we've got trying to keep the show going for as long as possible. Um, so buy your, your hoodies and T-shirts. Uh, HackerInTheFed.com for, for the merch. Uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you uh, find your podcasts. Uh, Hector, safe staying home this week. <laughs> uh, another great show, and I enjoyed speaking with you. Hi, right, my brother. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. All right, cheers. <laughs>